the Committee of Foreign Relations, the United States Senate, will come to order. And uh, today, uh, the committee meets to review measures taken by Congress and the administration to reduce illegal uh, migration flows from Central America. Uh, there have been growing concerns about the changing nature of uh, illegal uh, immigration flows arriving at our southwest border, as we all know. The uncontrolled arrival of and the illegal entry of immigrants, including unaccompanied minors and or adults traveling with children, exposes vulnerable populations, especially women and children, to unspeakable dangers. Only human traffickers and other unscrupulous criminals benefit from this unresolved situation. Transnational criminal organizations target and exploit immigrants along the journey north, which in turn fuels the violence and insecurity from which they flee. Here in the US, they challenge our government's ability to protect the homeland and test the capacity of local and national authorities to respond to citizens' demands for safe and prosperous communities. Let me be clear. Our nation has a strong and enduring national interest in a safe, prosperous, and democratic Central America. Congress has responded to the crisis by supporting foreign assistance programs that address the root causes of illegal migration in cooperation with the governments of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. The need, however, far exceeds the financial ability of the U.S. or any government to solve this problem. U.S. security and ju judicial cooperation have, however, helped Central American countries reduce homicide rates by nearly half and increasingly take on high-profile cases in the fight against public corrupt corruption. But much work remains to be done in reducing unacceptably high levels of violence, corruption, and economic insecurity, including through better enforcement of immigration laws. Certainly, there are many challenges on the road ahead but we can also see them as opportunities to engage with our neighbors in a meaningful way. Uh, President Bukele in, South, uh, in, in El Salvador has made important and positive commitments to improve the challenging situation he inherited from his FMLN predecessor. We ought to work with this, uh, his administration to make sure these commitments become a reality in short order. We had the opportunity to meet with him personally, and he has personally made these commitments. The president-elect of Guatemala, Giamate, has also provides a new opportunity for engagement. Guatemala has the largest economy in Central America, but faces significant challenges in improving living conditions for its people. Honduras has been a strong U.S. security and diplomatic partner, but many are concerned about the impact of ongoing uh, political disputes and the unfinished fight against widespread corruption. Honduras must double down on efforts to improve domestic conditions in the short term. All three governments should work with the administration on constructive solutions and, en and enforceable commitments in these areas. Lastly, I would be rem remiss if I failed to note that this, institution, uh, own, th this institution's own inability to take practical steps to ease the ongoing immigration and humanitarian crisis. Despite multiple attempts, Congress continues to fail to modernize our immigration laws and close loopholes being exploited by violent gangs, human traffickers, and other transnational criminal organizations that prey on the most vulnerable and the desperate and innocent people in the region. With that, uh, I welcome 
uh, our guests here today. We're looking forward to what you have to say. I'd like to turn to Senator Menendez for his opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me thank you for convening the hearing to review U.S. policy towards Mexico and Central America. This is an incredibly important hearing, which comes at a time when I believe the President is engaged in a calculated attempt to aggravate regional migration dynamics for domestic political gain at the expense of our national security. Since taking office, the President has systematically worked to politicize the U.S. immigration system and polarize Americans on this issue. In 2017, the President sought to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA program, a merciless decision that would have led to the deportation of more than 822,000 individuals who arrived to the United States as children. In 2018, the administration cruelly separated more than 2,814 immigrant children from their families. In 2017, 2018, and 2019, the Trump administration lowered the number of refugees the United States would welcome to this nation, tarnishing our moral leadership and our historic role as a beacon of life for persecuted people. In the same vein, the administration's foreign policy decisions that we will review today appear to be intentionally aimed at fueling regional instability and deliberately designed to leave people in harm's way. In May, President Trump took the unprecedented step of threatening Mexico, our second largest export market, our third largest trading partner, with the equivalent of escalating economic sanctions if their government didn't take his definition of additional steps to address regional migration. To prevent the potentially disastrous blow to the United States and Mexican economies that the President's temper tantrum might have unleashed, U.S. and Mexican negotiating teams scrambled to cobble together an agreement that barely passes the legal laugh test. For six weeks after it was signed, the administration could not tell us whether the U.S.-Mexico joint declaration was legally binding under international law, and still cannot tell us whether the government of Mexico views it as legally binding. In late July, the U.S. signed a so-called safe third country agreement with Guatemala with the intention of sending desperate asylum seekers back to Guatemala if they didn't file an asylum application while passing through that country before arriving at the U.S. border. This must be the Trump administration's twisted attempt at a joke. With one of the highest homicide rates in the world, the Guatemalan government cannot even protect its own citizens. Guatemala's obvious lack of capacity to carry out this agreement will only fuel more regional instability. Just last Friday, the U.S. signed a similar agreement with El Salvador. Given that El Salvador has recently held the title of, quote, the world's murder capital, any agreement to send asylum seekers back to El Salvador is incredibly disturbing. So, Mr. Chairman, while I appreciate the spirit in which you worked with me to set up today's hearing, I would note that to this day, despite your best efforts, the administration still refuses to provide us with complete copies of all of the agreements and arrangements that they are signing with Central American governments in relation to migration. There is no justification for withholding this information from Congress and from the American people, other than this administration does not want the public to know what it's doing in the name of the United States. Now, I suppose it's no surprise that DHS is missing in action today. They did not bother showing up to even try to defend the administration's policies. 
We do know, however, that the administration has expanded implementation of its deceptively named migrant protection protocols along the entire U.S.-Mexico border. Under this abhorrent policy, the U.S. is pushing asylum seekers, including pregnant women and families with children, back over the border into some of Mexico's most violent cities to await adjudication of their asylum claims. Since the policy's inception in January, we have seen asylum seekers facing terrifying violence and tragedy. These decisions have consequences. No one at today's hearing should ever forget the photo of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his 23-month-old daughter, Valeria, who drowned on the banks of the Rio Grande after they were unable to enter the United States at a port of entry to file their asylum claim. Further fueling this instability in March, President Trump personally announced its cuts to U.S. foreign assistance to El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, one of the most important tools that we have to defend our national interests and address the factors driving migration to the U.S. Seems that the president likes to use foreign assistance in political ways very often. This is a self-inflicted wound to our national security. While the this, by the way, monies that were certified by the Secretary of State on several occasions to have been effective in pursuit of the policies that we were seeking. While the administration has decided to go forward with limited funding for DHS and Justice Department initiatives, the White House has forced the State Department to reprogram $450 million in funding that was appropriated by Congress. Congress made clear through the FY 2018 appropriations omnibus that these funds should have gone to programs to improve the rule of law, combat drug trafficking and criminal gangs, professionalize local law enforcement, advance economic development, and strengthen the migration systems that will be overwhelmed by the administration's new asylum agreements. Instead, we find ourselves without the necessary funds to address challenges in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. I think every member of this committee should be asking whether the administration is intentionally trying to destabilize Central America in order to fuel more chaos at the U.S. border. With that in mind, I thank our witnesses for appearing today. I'm going to have some uh, very uh, critical questions, and I look forward to your honest testimony and response. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. thank you, Senator Menendez. We'll now turn to our witnesses. The Honorable Kirsten Madison has served in various senior leadership positions at the State Department, White House, Department of Homeland Security, and our very own Foreign Relations Committee. Welcome back. Ms. Madison's prior executive branch service includes serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs, Director of the Western Hemisphere Affairs on the National Security Council, and Director of International Affairs and Foreign Policy Advisor to Commandant of Coast Guard. Outside of her time in government, Ms. Madison served as Senior Advisor to the Secretary General of the Organization of American States. She most recently worked at the American Enterprise Institute as Deputy Director for Foreign and Defense Policy Studies. Ms. Madison, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Risch uh, and Ranking Men Member Menendez and distinguished members of the committee. Uh, I very much appreciate the opportunity to testify before you today. Transnational criminal organizations, or TCOs, continue to have a devastating and deadly impact on the United States and our citizens. In the region, they undermine citizen security, erode the rule of law, and limit economic opportunity. 
In extraordinarily consequential ways, TCOs exploit our shared land border with Mexico and the poorest borders of Central America to smuggle migrants, traffic drugs, and other illicit goods, and generate vast quantities of illicit revenue. Tackling these challenges does demand our continued focus, collaborative action, and cross-border cooperation. TCOs leave a deadly wake behind them wherever they go. Uh, nowhere is the impact more tangible for Americans than right here at home. Nearly 70,000 Americans lost their lives to a drug overdose uh, in, in 2017. And taking into account recent indications that Mexico's role as a fentanyl trafficking hub is evolving to include fentanyl production, uh, these trends underscore the urgency with which we must act collectively to combat this crisis. The United States cannot effectively address the drug crisis, nor the TCOs that perpetuate it, without Mexico's direct action. While Mexico is working with us on many fronts, President Trump noted in his recent majors list determination that Mexico needs to do more. We must see better results that effectively contribute to a reduction in the amount of illegal narcotics flowing from and through Mexico. We want to see Mexican security forces and justice institutions root out the TCOs that destabilize the country. Mexico needs to, help to, 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 needs to work and develop a comprehensive and whole-of-government counter-narcotics strategy with clear metrics so that we can better understand Mexico's progress and we can better understand how we can help. We are ready to jointly create unambiguous, shared, and measurable counter-narcotics goals and targets. And in support of such a strategy, the United States needs Mexico to interdict more drugs, sustainably reduce poppy cultivation um, and heroin and synthetic drug production, and bring more drug traffickers to justice while depriving them of their illicit profits. In Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, INL has worked to counter drug trafficking and combat TCO seeking not only to traffic in drugs, but also weapons, illicit goods, and human beings to the United States by doing the long haul work of improving the capacity of these governments, law enforcement, and justice sectors to work to control their borders and address these threats. The Guatemalan Navy leads these countries in making positive strides in counter-narcotics cooperation, much like El Salvador's law enforcement agencies lead in the fight against transnational criminal gangs. Although we are encouraged by Honduras's steps to work with us on gangs and other issues, we do need them to commit more resources and to improve training and institutional capacity, increase their operations, uh, and, and continue to step forward to work with their other partners in the region. To counter TCOs and strengthen border security, we are also working to improve uh, not only the skills of border agencies across the region, uh, but we are also working to improve the collection and exchange of biometric information among these countries and with the United States. This capability enhances our joint efforts to identify, track, and dismantle transnational criminal networks and other violent criminal groups, to track migration patterns, to analyze human trafficking networks, uh, and to support cross-border investigations of gang members and other criminals to enable su successful prosecutions. This is really contributing to the larger effort to, to try and take a, um, a bigger bite uh, out of criminal organizations uh, that are responsible for a variety of ills in the region. For INL, the Western Hemisphere has long been a core focus. The work we do to take on these threats in the region can have an immediate impact on the security of our country, which is always priority one. Today, INL remains engaged in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Mexico on a more limited basis, but we remain engaged, working to improve law enforcement, border security, and to main tools of cooperation, like specialized and vetted units, between and among our law enforcement agencies. We do this in close partnership with organizations like CBP, um, Homeland Security Investigations, DEA, and the FBI. 
INL investments on behalf of the American taxpayer will have maximum impact where there's demonstrated will on the part of our counterparts to work with us to confront these profound and frankly evolving challenges. The benefit to the United States is clear. But I do kind of want to emphasize one point as I end. This is also the key to governments in the region earning the trust and confidence of their citizens. To do that, they must demonstrate that they are willing and able to provide for security, to hold criminals and corrupt officials accountable, and to create the conditions in which ordinary citizens have more opportunity, economic and otherwise. We have been working with them on this, but in the end, they have to be the protagonists in their own story in, in taking these issues on. With that, um, I will end, uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, uh, Ms. Madison. Uh, now we'll hear from Mr. Michael Kozak. He served as the Acting Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs since September 13th. He has served in a number of senior positions at the State Department, including the Senior Bureau Official for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor the Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary for Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, and the Senior Director on the National Security Council staff. He also served as the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureaus of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, Inter-American Affairs and Legal Advisor, and as Assistant Secretary of State for extended periods. He was the Ambassador in Minsk, Belarus, and Chief of Mission in Havana, Cuba. Welcome, Mr. Kovac, Kozak, we're glad to have you here, anxious to hear your comments. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and uh, distinguished members of the committee, it's an honor to be asked to discuss our U.S. policy in Mexico and Central America. Mexico and Central America share close bonds with the United States. The administration's top objective remains ensuring the safety and security of the American people but we also care deeply about the safety and security of those in the region. Today, they are being victimized by human traffickers. People have been heading north from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras for decades. Since 2014, however, the numbers have surged. Our systems are overwhelmed. The number of people arriving at the southern border now approaches the total annual number of immigrants worldwide authorized by law. The U.S. strategy for Central America adopted in 2015 was designed to reduce the migration push factor. It was to do so by helping governments in the region that had the will to combat corruption, crime, and antiquated economic models that protect those who have long benefited from the status quo. Despite some significant programmatic successes, however, this approach failed. U.S. Customs and Border Protection encountered an average of 115,000 illegal migrants per month at the U.S. border from March to June of this year, and over 140,000 in May alone. Something had to change. Consistent with the President's guidance earlier this year, the Department reprogrammed certain assistance intended for El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras to other countries. This reprogramming was designed to send a wake-up call to the government's that they need to do more to address outward migration and the factors that drive it. The administration identified the immediate problem and what the governments of these countries could do to address it. Now, as to the problem, I think uh, Mexican uh, President Lopez Obrador described it best last month when he said, and I quote, we want to tell our people and our Central American brethren that they should not allow themselves to be manip manipulated and fooled by human smugglers. There's a huge network of human traffickers, and they charge huge amounts of money to transport migrants and organize these caravans. 
and Mexico acted to address the problem. In the June 7 U.S.-Mexico Joint Declaration, Mexico committed to combat human smuggling, deploy its National Guard throughout Mexico, and work with the U.S. to implement and expand the migrant protection protocols. And this approach has worked. We've seen an almost 60% reduction in the numbers of illegal migrants arriving at the border. And we've worked also to create mechanisms with the countries in Central America that will allow those who have legitimate refugee or asylum claims to obtain protection in Central America. They need not undertake the perilous journey in the hands of smugglers. For example, through the agreement between the United States and Guatemala on cooperation regarding the examination of protection claims, very succinct title, the United States plans to help Guatemala build an asylum processing system that can help those fleeing their own countries of origin who may have asylum concerns. Salvadoran Foreign Minister Alexandra Hill just signed a similar agreement on September 20, and we are discussing similar arrangements with the government of Honduras. Now, these measures are having a substantial effect on countering the pull factors that cause people to think that they will be able to enter and live in the United States if they just pay the smugglers and endure the abuse that they mete out. But these measures do not address the push factors that make people in the three countries leave home in the first place. Powerful criminal and political forces in these countries profit from irregular migration. The governments of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras must show the political will to do more to strengthen institutions, root out corruption, and fight impunity as their citizens themselves are demanding. And we will continue to work and consult with Congress on future steps as we look forward to fiscal year 2020. Our long-term success depends on fostering political will in the region to end years of corruption and impunity and to strengthen in institutional capacity. As our partner governments take on this challenge, and we hope with seriousness of purpose, they will find us to be a close collaborator and friend. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, and we look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. Uh, we're now gonna do a uh, five-minute uh, round of questions. I'll reserve time, and with that, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Kozak, since this is the first hearing this committee has convened on Mexico, with official witnesses since January of 2017, I think it's important we start with the basics. Can you provide us with information about what steps, if any, Secretary Pompeo and the State Department have taken to ensure that Mexico pays for the border wall, as President Trump has claimed will happen? I don't think the, uh, the State Department has been the lead on, on that issue. And I, I think you'd have to go back and look at what the president said at different times about offsets and that sort of, uh, of things. I, I don't think that was a, we were expecting a, a check to be handed over, but uh, you can look at the balances with- so There's nothing you can tell me that the secretary has done in pursuit of getting Mexico to pay for the border wall. Not that I can tell you, sir, but I will certainly take the question back to him. To I've emphasize, had this job for a week and a half, so I, I, I'm not aware. I, I realize that, but you're yeah. here. I, yeah, I, I respect I, your I, long I, history. I, I admire I, what you did when you were at Cuba and other places, but you're the witness here, and yes, I have sir. no choice but to deal with the witnesses we're given. Uh, in that respect, uh, to emphasize the point that the president never intended to have Mexico pay for the border wall, I'd ask unanimous consent to include a question for the record from former Assistant Secretary Kimberly Breer, a political nominee from this administration, in which she stated that she never 
intended to push Mexico on this issue. Mr. Chairman. Any, uh, that will be included in the record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, let me continue to pursue uh, a line of questioning here. Uh, Mr. Kozak, the State Department refused to provide this committee with a copy of the supplementary agreement with Mexico and was unable to explain whether the United States considered the joint declaration to be legally binding under international law or not. When legal advisor uh, Mark String testified before this committee in July, he told us that the joint declaration was, quote, an authoritative political agreement, end quote, a term that I understand has never been used to describe any agreement in the United States' history. Moreover, the few documents that we have received from the administration, including in a response to a letter from the chairman, do not appear to represent the entire framework of binding and non-binding agreements, implementing agreements, et cetera, that the administration has place, put in place with Mexico in the Northern Triangle. We have no idea what was the agreement signed with El Salvador last Friday. Uh, and as I understand it, DHS, CBP, and ICE have negotiated other agreements and instruments. So, uh, do you know if the Mexican government views the joint declaration as legally binding? Um, Senator, I've, I've not had a chance to talk with the Mexican government, but I can address some of the other uh, issues you raised there. Uh, well, those other issues would be giving me the documents on the committee. Yes, documents. and I, my understanding is that the both the uh, uh, joint declaration and the supplementary agreement have now been provided to the committee. Um, I can undertake there, if you, I believe you've also received copies well, of the agreement with Guatemala. If not, we will be sure to get it to you. We, we and, do not. And, so and, let, uh, me, let me follow and Honduras, up. Then and on the that, one that was signed with El Salvador. Let me well. follow up then on that question. Will uh, you commit to transmitting to the committee a copy of all the migration-related instruments, binding or non-binding, annexes, appendices, implementation plans, guidance, and other related documents that the administration has signed, agreed to, or otherwise joined with Mexico and the Central American government so we can finally get a clear picture on what the administration is doing here? Yes, sir, with the, with the caveat that uh, often agencies, implementing agencies, have understandings. Some of them you know, are just procedural and oral, who will be the point of contact and that kind of thing, which we would not necessarily have available to, to provide you. It's not that there's anything greatly secret, but my understanding is on the Mexican Accords, the, the, the latest state of play with the legal advisor's office, and I believe they've briefed your staff as well, is that the, we do consider the supplementary agreement and the joint declaration taken together to constitute a legally binding agreement. And we've so uh, indicated to our Mexican uh, counterparts, uh, those have been provided. I am not aware of any other agreements related to that. Obviously, as people implement it, they will have. I sent the ways department of doing multiple questions about the U.S.-Mexico Declaration and Supplementary Agreement in early August, and I've asked for written responses to each question. We have yet to receive it. We're now uh, almost at the end of September. Uh, given the potentially uh, important legal analysis underpinning the U.S. position on these instruments, I think it's critical for Congress to understand it. Can you give us a commitment to get us answers to the questions that have been pending since August within the next week? Yes, sir. Uh, we will uh, provide answers to, uh, I, I think we have uh, 
recently had the, at least my understanding was the legal advisor staff had come up and briefed the committee staff and hopefully had addressed those questions. But if there are others, we, we, we have a series of requests for written responses and we have not received. And we will, we will work. Finally, can you tell me whether you can confirm whether the State Department's own website says that the Mexican state of Tamaulipas has the same travel level warning as Syria, level four, do not travel due to high levels of violent crime there? That is my understanding. Can you also uh, say that uh, the administration has uh, made uh, clear that levels of violence in Mexico City were not indicators considered when deciding whether to implement the migration protection protocols along the U.S. border? I, I don't know the answer to whether well, that's, they, that's they were That's what the, our staff was told by officials from DHS, the State Department, Western Hemisphere, yep. and the PRM Bureau, so I'd like you to reconfirm that for me. That's what they were verbally told. And finally, can you tell me whether the administration, uh, at a briefing, told our staff and Republican staff, as I understand, that pregnant women in their third trimester and families with young children are not considered vulnerable populations and therefore will be sent back to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico policy. Can you confirm that? I can't confirm that either, sir. I don't, I'll have to would, would consult you do so with DHS for, and- uh, Would you do so for the record? We'll, we'll do so. I have questions for Secretary Madison, but in deference to my colleagues, I'll wait for a second round. Senator Udall. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for working on uh, getting this hearing. In an action that uh, disgraces our nation and further erodes U.S. leadership around the world, uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence walked out of the United Nations Climate Summit this week. In doing so, they not only turned their backs on the world, but on future generations and on the very people he's trying to dissuade from seeking asylum in the United States. With his abusive border policy separating families and his unconstitutional wall paid for by the United States military, in places like Central America, climate change is hitting hard, causing droughts and raising temperatures. Since 2014, this drought has made subsistence farming nearly impossible. People are starving and unable to make a living. Coffee a crop that was once a ticket to a stable livelihood has been devastated by outbreaks of coffee leaf rust. The United States has reacted not by providing aid to help stem the resulting economic collapse or to provide support with irrigation or drought-resistance crops or to address the climate crisis in our hemisphere head-on. Instead, this administration has cut or frozen foreign aid to the region. Was this question's to both of you. Was it appropriate for President Trump and Vice President Pence to turn their back on the world at the UN when the global community was addressing climate change this week? Well, it's it, this, I, I think the president has been clear on his rationale for uh, the steps that he took, and I have nothing that I could, could add beyond that. Ms. Madison. Senator, I don't have anything to add on, on climate policy. Um, I will say that uh, I and others in the administration have been in New York. Uh, I was up there working on synthetic opioids and other issues with the Chinese. And the United States also supported what I thought was a pretty remarkable convening of will and uh, purpose on protection of 
uh, international religious freedom in the world. Uh, so I think there's been some very positive engagement by this administration. I was up there myself uh, doing a forum with uh, companies on synthetic opioids. Um, so I think that record speaks for itself in, in, in terms of the other issues. And like uh, Ambassador Kozak, I, I can't add anything on climate change. Did, did either of you recommend the United States mission at the United Nations address ways to support the climate refugees from Central America at the United Nations this week. Ms. Madison, you were up there, so. I, I did not. Thank you. Do you agree with former Customs and Border Patrol Commissioner Kevin McAleen, who said, and I'm quoting here from the, the commissioner, food insecurity, not violence, seems to be a key push factor in informing the decision to travel from Guatemala where we have seen the largest growth in migration flow this year. Do you agree with that? I, my view on, on the drivers and the push factors on migration is that it's, it's complicated. It's not one thing, it's, a, it's an accumulation of, of different issues. It is also about the posture that we have in terms of enforcement here and the structure of our laws. But I think in countries, I think it very varies widely uh, what the drivers are and why people make individual decisions to leave. I think some of it has to do with crime. I'm sure some of it has to do with economic opportunity. I don't think there's any one piece of the puzzle that explains it. Mr. I, I would uh, concur in that and add, I mean, you, you can look at some of the indicators that where there's been actual success in driving down the levels of violence, and this would tend to support the statement that you just quoted, Senator, uh, the numbers of people leaving has gone up even as the violence, uh, the murder rate has gone down. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a complex system. From my past experience in dealing with, with mass migrations, and I, I go back to the Mariel boat lift in, the, in 1980, and then again in the 90s we had let, both Haiti. Let me just stop yep. you a second because I have one more point I want oh, to sure. cover here. NBC News reported last week that research compiled by Customs and Border Protection showed that crop failures were having a devastating impact on rural Central Americans and were largely the cause of the migration to the United States. It was also reported that the White House largely ignored these findings when it made the decision to cut and freeze aid to the region. Did you read these reports, and do either of you believe that cutting aid to Central America will help address the root causes of migration? Yeah, well, my mic is up. Um, look, I, I, as I indicated in my testimony, I think the, the purpose with cutting the aid and by the way, a lot of that aid was not addressed at, at food and so on. It was addressed at uh, police training. It was addressed at, uh, I mean, some of it was my former bureau program for in, uh, independent journalists and this type of thing. Uh, but, and, and all of these programs were good on their own merits. If you look at each one of them, and I think you, you find that they were producing the results the programs were intended to produce. What was missing though, is the, the political will on the part of the governments to actually attack some of these big problems of corruption and transparency. All of the economic factors can go back to the lack of growth. You look at Costa Rica and Panama, which are similar countries, have good, strong economic growth. People are not trying to leave those countries. The three countries that we're talking about have per perennially had very slow growth rates, and it's in part because their systems are so dominated by 
illegal uh, groups, drug traffickers, human traffickers, and people with like protectionist uh, instincts. They don't want com competition in the economy, so they don't. They don't. All of this com conspires to avoid uh, investment uh, coming in, and both domestic and foreign investment, to build and grow the economy. So that's one of the big pieces of the puzzle we have to deal with, and I think would get at some of the factors that you are uh, uh, articulating, Senator. But, but that's part of what we're trying to do, is say to the governments there, you need to get serious about this. You need to really do the reforms that are going to uh, attract investment and make your economy strong and give your people a, a chance and a future in their own countries. Uh, we can train people and create capacity within their bureaucracy all day long, but if you don't have the political will to use that capacity and allow the, what's traditionally gone on there to continue, that's the problem. So there was a signal there. You can debate you know, whether that was the right way to, to do it or not. Uh, we, the administration uh, felt that it was and that it's producing results. But what we're looking for is how do we signal this? The people in these countries, you look in every past election, they're electing people who are pledging to take on these kinds of problems in the society. Then they get elected and they don't do it. And that's been, that's been the, uh, the syndrome for some time. So that's what we're really focused on. And we really look forward to working with the committee and trying to figure out ways to incentivize that and convince people of it. Thank you. you. Know, I think cutting the aid cri cripples the countries. Uh, that's where I'm coming from. Thank you, Senator. Um, Mr. Kozak, thank you for that clear uh, explanation based on your experience down there. Well said. Um, Senator Cardin. Secretary Madison, I want to follow up a little bit on the questioning from Senator Menendez as it relates to these migration agreements. But, but I want to start first with what I observed when I was on the border. Uh, we had a congressional delegation that went to McAllen area, the Rio Grande Valley, and we had a chance to talk with the border security people as well as uh, some of the migrants themselves. And the question I want to focus is on the safety of those who are trying to seek asylum in the United States when they reach our border and they are confronted with a situation where they want to present themselves here for uh, asylum uh, hearings but they're told they have to wait in Mexico for a particular length of time until their number comes up when they can present their case. We've been told that that can be weeks, it can be months. And they are therefore expected to remain in Mexico pending their opportunity to present their claim. We're also told by our border patrol people that this town that they're in in Mexico is not a safe town. There's orders that our own personnel are not allowed to go to that city. And we've heard a lot of accounts about the abuses, particularly of women and children, in these centers. Can you explain to me what the U.S. policy is in regards to those individuals coming to our border to protect their safety uh, during a process to determine whether they're eligible for asylum? I can't speak to the exact I was asking uh, Secretary, DHS. You can answer I'm sorry, okay, sir. Okay, so, 
INL's role in Mexico, uh, we are not dealing directly with the question of what's going on with asylum claims and other things. But you have set up a policy of getting a number which can be weeks or months away before they can present themselves for asylum. Um, again, I'm not directly involved in, in the, the mechanics of the migration piece of it. What, what we do in Mexico is we work with the police, with the border officials, with, with the judicial system and with other, the other instruments of the, of the rule of law in Mexico uh, that address security issues. Can you assure this committee today that those people who are waiting are being properly protected and are not being, they're not vulnerable to the type of circumstances we've heard of violence and rape and things like that? I am not in a position to assure the committee of what the circumstances are on the ground in a particular place in Mexico. Is there a reason why the U.S. policy would put people at that risk? That is, they, they can't cross the border because you won't let them present the case until their number is called. Is there an explanation? Either one. I'll, I'll uh, add what I, what I can on that, Senator, with, with the same caveats my colleague said that we're not you know, able to, to tell you about every place in, in Mexico. But, I've asked you about yeah, a specific but, place. But I, what I can say is that our Bureau of uh, Population, uh, Migration, and Refugees has uh, put, uh, I think it's in the order of $56 million or something, into helping build shelters for people who are in that situation to stay in in Mexico. I'm not so, aware that we have put resources on this border. Yeah, well, that, that's my Because I've been told that our people can't go there. So if we're putting resources, we're putting resources where we can't go? It's, we, we often do that because we're working through uh, non-governmental organizations, How do we know that, that, that it's accountable that they're actually safe in these shelters? How do you know that if you don't visit them? The the shelters are are uh, set up by non-governmental organizations, uh, humanitarian organizations, and try to provide. Now, the reason people end up in that state, for, and you're, I think, talking about Tamaulipas and and uh, yes. Nuevo Laredo, is the the people who showed up at who came into Tamaulipas and then came to our border point at uh, at Laredo. When they leave, they're going back where they came in, which is now they could go somewhere else in Mexico theoretically. Theoretically, it's because it's not the theoretical. Is there, it's not theoretical. This is what they do. We've yeah. heard numerous cases about this. They then try to find an illegal place to cross because it's not safe for them to stay in the town on the border because they'll get raped, they'll get abused, they'll get uh, so they find an illegal place and then they're picked up and they causes the large numbers of people who have illegally crossed into this country. That's the safest way, and it's not a safe way because many of them are, we've seen deaths where people try to cross illegally, et cetera. It's not a safe way to go. No, and I, with that, I would agree, Senator, completely. And this is why, as I was indicating in my testimony, that step one in trying to deal with a mass migration like this is to try to find measures that deter people from taking those risks in the first place and instead channel their, their concerns or their, de their desires for economic improvement into safe and, and lawful uh, ways of doing it. And that's what we're trying to do with in-country refugee programs in the If in the they region. can be safe. And again, I am extremely concerned that we don't have eyes on the ground to see what is actually happening. We heard case after case after case 
of people being abused, particularly women and children, waiting in, in uh, the, the, the uh, border towns. And, and now you're suggesting under these agreements that they'll be safe in a country in which they're fleeing because they're not safe. Well, let, let me add a couple of things. One, my colleague is clarifying to me that we do uh, visit these uh, shelters that are uh, regional security officers. We recommend people not just go on their own, but when we have an official purpose there, we do it, and that is one of our purposes. Uh, and and we're and so we are visiting and seeing how what's going on in the shelters. Second, people are being abused and molested when they're trying to get there in the first place. No we had the figures that you know, thirty some percent of all the women have been uh, in the in the uh, migration flow have been uh, sexually. Uh, assaulted during that time. This is why it is, what we're trying to do is to say, don't do this, don't come, don't overwhelm our border facilities and so on. But if you do have legitimate asylum uh, concerns, there are other ways to deal with that that are safe and lawful. Uh, my colleagues in the Refugee Bureau have pointed out that for some time we've supported uh, international entities operating in the three countries Put so Mexico if you will make available, since you do do inspections, could you make that information available to me and this committee where you have physically visited these sites and what you have learned in regards to the safety of the people there, recognizing that the person that you send in to make that has security with him or her because it's not safe for them to be there? Yes, certainly, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. I sort of want to follow up on a, the safety issue, but from a different angle, the safe third party, I'm sorry, the safe third country agreements. I know we have a safe third country agreement with Guatemala. I understand we've signed a protection cooperative agreement with El Salvador. You would agree with me, we, we should not enter into a safe third country agreement with a nation that we believe to be unsafe, should we? Well, Senator, first, I think the the name of the agreement, the one in Guatemala has a very long name that was quoted in my testimony. Mm -hmm. But this is not, safe third country like Canada applies to people coming from anywhere and everywhere in the world. These are, are much more particularized is my understanding. And it's saying, so people who have come through Guatemala on their way would, would go back there and- Do you uh, think Guatemala's a safe country? Uh, the question is safe for whom? Uh, the uh, the uh, immigration people, people, the know. immigration naturalization act says uh, to be safe it's a place where the migrants quote life or freedom would not be threatened on account of race religion nationality membership in a particular social group or political opinion and where the alien would have access to full and fair procedure for determining a claim to asylum or equivalent temporary protection Guatemala has one of the highest homicide rates in the, in the world do, do you think Guatemala is a place where people's life and freedom aren't threatened on account of race, religion, or political opinion. Yeah, it's the it's the latter point that that it needs to be for one of those reasons that people are threatened. But what I would say, uh, just yesterday, can, can uh, I just say this? Yeah. You would agree with me, would you not? That the United, I mean, language should have a meaning, and we shouldn't we shouldn't designate a country as a safe third country if in fact it's unsafe, right? Can you agree with me on that proposition? I would, I would agree we should not send someone who is liable to be persecuted on account of religion or political opinion or the other factors that you just uh, uh, read to a place where they would be persecuted for those reasons. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean that, you, that a country that has a crime problem or something is unsafe in that respect. Uh, if you're not one of the people who are likely to be 
but, but targeted it, but, for, but if a, for those have characteristics. That they are, then they shouldn't be returned to that country, correct? Correct. If they if they if they have a well-founded fear of persecution in that country, right. for, for those reasons, they sh they should not yeah, go I mean, there. I, I just think, and this is why we're we're working to try to help the Guatemalans develop their asylum capacity to be sure that 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 happens. Just uh, yesterday, OMB freed up. Uh, another $47 million of, of aid so that we can provide uh, assistance to Guatemala in building that capacity. Let me, let me ask you this, uh, uh, Mr. Kozak. You indicated that you were defending the cut in uh, aid, economic development, and other aid to the Northern Triangle countries because the governments weren't doing enough, to, in your view, to take seriously these issues. I'm kind of curious about that with respect to Honduras. The Honduran elections were fraught with controversy and the OAS actually said the country should strike the elections and rerun the elections. Now, we've been trying to support the OAS, and when the OAS speaks strongly on something like that, that's tough for them to do. But they took a fairly strong position that the, the election should be rerun to deal with the kind of corruption challenges you raised. In the, the Trump administration actually ignored the OAS and recognized the legitimacy of the election of the current Honduran president. So having done that, now we're blaming them for not doing enough and cutting their aid? Why, in your opinion, did we not follow the OAS recommendation and recognize that corruption when the election occurred? Well, I'm not sure the connection between the two things, but with respect to the election... Uh, well, I'm just saying yeah. if, if we're blaming them for being corrupt and the OAS basically said the election shows they're corrupt. The U.S., please support us and call for new elections in Honduras. And instead, we recognized the corrupt government and sort of vetoed what the OAS was proposing. Why would we do that? I, th I think, Senator, uh, going back, and it was in my past job, yeah. in looking at the reports, there were, there were election observers there from the EU and others. The consensus of the observers were that the, that the election process, particularly the vote count, had been very badly handled, uh, it was, it, it, it undercut the appearance of transparency and so on. But on the other side, they said in the end, in fact, the, the count was accurate and that the, the current president had narrowly uh, been reelected. You know, did we consider now, the OAS the, position yeah, at all? And, was and that, I was think, that I think my, to us? We, we did do so. Uh, the OAS position was not that the vote was inaccurate, but that there was so much of this controversy around it that it would be a good idea to rerun it again. Uh, well, I think in just, the end, my, the, my, my time yeah. has expired, but I, I just I, want to point out if, yeah. if, if the United States is basically having an opportunity to speak out against corruption and support the OAS when the OAS has said there should be new elections, and we choose to ignore the OAS and recognize the corrupt government, and then we blame the corrupt, corrupt government for not doing enough and cut their aid, we're trying to have it both ways. and, and uh, and I think that's pretty clear. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, Senator Portman. Thank you, uh, Chairman Rich, and thanks for holding this, uh, this uh, committee hearing. And uh, Ranking Member Menendez, this is a critical part of our, uh, our U.S. trade agenda right now, uh, as well as critical for immigration policy and uh, with regard to drug policy. So I'm, I'm going to try to touch on all three quickly. Um, one, on the trade front, is USMCA good or bad for Mexico? Mr. Kozak. Well, I think uh, the Mexican administration seems to have made the judgment that it's good because they have uh, uh, adhered to it and, uh, and moved it forward. Yeah. 
In fact, they're done with their processes yes, there. Ratified. And, uh, uh, you know, we've come up with an agreement that meets a lot of the criteria that uh, many in this body have called for over the years, like enforceable labor standards, enforceable environmental st mm -hmm. standards. In fact, a 70% requirement of steel coming from North America for our cars and a minimum wage uh, in North America for uh, auto workers. Um, so my hope is we can, we can get that done because it is good for Mexico. Uh, and it's also good for us, and yep. it's good for our deepening of our relationship and, and other issues. On the drug front, uh, uh, Secretary Madison, you spoke earlier about the flow of narcotics, and um, one thing you mentioned was the fentanyl coming now from the south. Fentanyl traditionally, as you know, has come through the mail system, uh, mostly through the U.S. mail system, by the way, not, not the uh, private carriers, uh, directly from China. Um, that poison comes right into our neighborhoods. But increasingly, we're seeing it coming over the border. Can you give us some sense of that, uh, what the numbers are, and, and where is it being made? Um, we've heard different things. One is that there were a couple of fentanyl uh, illicit chemical companies in Mexico that were shut down. Uh, others say you know, it's still being made south of the border. Some say it's coming in from China to Mexico, then being often uh, converted into pill form and coming in. Tell us a little about that. Fentanyl being the deadliest of all of the drugs, uh, uh, the opioid that's killing the most people in my home state of Ohio. Yes, Senator. Um, the, obviously, we do a lot of work on the opioid issue writ large, and you are correct. Uh, it's a very pernicious business model, sold on the dark net, direct to consumer, paid for with anonymizing ass, uh, financial mechanisms, mm -hmm. and then dropped into the mail and showing up in, in tiny and large towns all across this country with very deadly results. Um, I, we are very concerned, actually, that, yes, we've begun to see production uh, in Mexico, um, and not on a huge, huge scale, but I don't think it takes huge scale to, for it to be a problem, right? I think any production in Mexico should, should be of concern to us. Uh, I do think precursor chemicals still come from China. I do think some finished product comes from China. Um, I've been out talking to uh, some other governments about what they're seeing, and I think there's a fair amount of transshipment going on where it gets mailed from China to a third country and then kind of makes its way here. So I, I think the, the, the traffickers are just basically adjusting to the countermeasures that we put in place. Um, with regard to Mexico specifically, um, we have been talking to the, to the government of Mexico about this particular issue and about the urgency and imperative for them to take it on. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work with them in their ports to get them up to our standards in their airports and their maritime ports. We've done a lot of work with them um, on the border um, uh, with non-intrusive inspection equipment, but more importantly, we've built a dog canine program there, which is actually the, the, one of the more effective ways to tackle this. It's 500 dogs, and we did it in cooperation with the RCMP. So the Mexicans are doing some interdictions, um, but I think this production piece is a, a, major, a major concern. Uh, I yesterday, as I mentioned, I was up in uh, New York, and one of the things I did was meet with uh, the deputy commissioner from China's uh, National Narcotics mm -hmm. Commission. Uh, and one of the things I explicitly talked to them about was the need for them to to uh, be working with Mexico and working with us on the precursor flow, uh, because there is a there is a pattern of behavior that existed before synthetic opioids, which is methamphetamine production in Mexico. Right. Right. And so the neural pathways are already there with the criminal organizations to send those precursor chemicals. Um, we've also worked with Mexico to update uh, their system for tracking precursor chemical imports and exports, uh, which is another piece of this puzzle. Have they done everything they can do in terms of um, scheduling the precursors? Uh, China, as you know, has made some changes in its laws, not enough yet, and they aren't enforcing it the way we'd like them to, but yeah. at least they are 
uh, doing something uh, by making it illegal. Has that happened in Mexico with regard to the precursors? Um, I think there's more work to be done in Mexico. I'm going to be there next week, well, us, uh, particularly to talk us, about this. Let us this. know what we can do in that regard. Uh, you mentioned some of the measures that are being taken. One is one that uh, came through this committee and others, which is the STOP Act, which is now law, which has helped to keep some of this flow coming through our mail system. And that's one reason you see the transshipments, I believe, because I think you're right. There's so much money in this. On the crystal meth, uh, we used to have meth labs in Ohio. We don't anymore. And it's not for a good reason. It's because it's so cheap and so much more powerful now coming directly from Mexico and the same cartels are selling it, I'm told, on the streets of Columbus, Ohio. It's less expensive than marijuana uh, for a similar dose. So I, I, I do think the crystal meth issue um, has become now a new epidemic, in a sense, uh, in a lot of our communities. And Mexico is the, um, the source, I'm told, of almost all that crystal meth. Is that accurate? They are definitely a source of, I, know to, I don't know if it's all, but they, they are definitely a source. Um, and I think uh, from, from our perspective, there's a lot more work to do on the drug front with Mexico. And uh, that's part of the reason I'm going down there. We have a very practical conversation that we need to have about what comes next. The other thing I will just add is the challenge that we're going to have is as we go after the synthetic opioids and the fentanyls, what's going to happen is be, there's such agility in the synthetic drug market that they're going to continue to basically innovate, uh, and we're going to have to sort of adjust our strategies. And I think that is, that is challenging um, because all these control mechanisms, they can quickly work their way out of them, and I think that's going to be one of the ongoing challenges that we have as we talk to governments about what else we can do together. We appreciate your, your service, and my time's expired, but and working directly with DHS because uh, the Acting Secretary, McLean, is also, as you know, working on this issue. And again, STOP Act is working. It's great. The Interdict Act is working. It's helpful. Um, but you're right, it's, there's so much money in it, and uh, a slight change in the chemical compound can, uh, uh, and other adjustments in synthetic drugs is, is truly frightening. So thank you for your service there, and let us know what we can do to be more helpful. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Portman. Senator Merkley. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Mr. Kozak, uh, you're familiar with the statute on Third Safe country, and you made reference to it, or safe third country, uh, and has it been used by any previous administration? Yes, I'm trying to remember which administration did it. I believe it was during the Clinton administration that Canada, we, we reached a safe third country agreement with Canada. And that is the only safe third country agreement in our history, is that not right? I believe that is correct. So that was in 2002 with Canada, uh, one of the safest countries in the, in the world. Now, we just signed a safe third country agreement with Guatemala. It hasn't been ratified by their Congress yet. That's yet to happen. Now, the U.S. State Department, their commentary on Guatemala is that it remains among the most dangerous in the world, endemic poverty, abundance of weapons, legacy of societal violence, presence of organized criminal gangs. And do you consider that a safe country to uh, return people to? Uh, Senator, I believe, as we were discussing before, it's safe in the sense of that the individual would not be persecuted on yes, account of ask, political opinion, yeah. race, uh, religion, and so on. It's no, not yes, whether I didn't ask the you, uh, general society yeah, is. 
that's not the question I asked you. Do you consider Guatemala to be safe, given the State Department's description, for people to be, who don't even come from Guatemala to be returned to? I mean, any, Again, any normal person yeah, would say. I would, I would oh. say it depends on, on who you are and where you are. Uh, I mean, Americans retire in Guatemala. I have friends who live there. I've been there myself and oh. gone around and toured around. So there is, now, but, there, if you're, but you if would you're, concede there's a huge difference between an American with resources and a refugee who has no funds, no family in Guatemala, no friends in Guatemala, aren't they extraordinarily vulnerable to this epidemic of an endemic crime that is being described by the State Department? Isn't that a, would you want your family member to return there with no friends or family or money? Uh, what I would a say sense of is, how, how reasonable this yeah, is. Yeah, sure. Look, People who are involved in this in this yeah. mass yeah. migration that is occurring are not safe in any of the places that they're that they're going. They're uh, being victimized by traffickers, particularly if you go back to a country and, and you're doing it illegally. You you are be particularly in, vulnerable. But you'd agree it'd be a lot safer if they were sent to Canada than sent to Guatemala. I'm in, in terms of uh, if you're just not aware of Canada and Guatemala, that's not the option. The 2018 I, State Department report says Guatemala widespread corruption, human trafficking, threats targeting the LGBTQ persons, use of forced and compulsory child labor. Now, uh, Tom Carpenter and I went down to Guatemala recently and met with all the social groups, went with the president, met, met with, and they just emphasized how all of this is extraordinarily unsafe for ordinary people in Guatemala, people who do not have family connections to protect them, do not have resources, all the more vulnerable. That's the point I want to make, is that I don't think any American would want anyone they know who is without resources to be sent into that setting because they're just so vulnerable. Now, El Salvador, we learned on September 20th that an disagreement had been signed uh, between with uh, El Salvador, and it allows us to send people who are not from El Salvador back to El Salvador. From any, in fact, it actually excludes El Salvadorans. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Are you aware children are not accepted? Are you aware that under this agreement, children from Africa who who could be returned to El Salvador, who do not speak the language, who do not have any sort of uh, supportive structure? Are you aware of the State Department's description of El Salvador? Forced disappearance by military personnel, torture by security forces, widespread government corruption, violence against women in gangs, children engaged in the, quote, worst forms of child labor. Is that a reasonable place to send children back to who don't even come from El Salvador or don't even speak Spanish? Senator, uh, first, the agreement with El Salvador has not been, uh, we, we signed it, but it has, hasn't been uh, put into force. The implementing agreements have not been done yet. So I'm asking what if will it's happen a reasonable to children thing. Is, another, is another matter. If I may get in, though, in all of these cases, and in Guatemala, I just mentioned that we're about to uh, provide $47 million in assistance to help the system. So you're not just sending somebody back into the environment without any resources. The idea is they go back to a place where there are international organizations that can provide protection and resources to them as they pursue their uh, asylum claims. The, so my, my time is running the out. Department of Homeland Security too is that they're going to they're not planning on just sending anybody and everybody there. We understand the limited capacity they have now, but as capacity builds, they'll be able to calibrate and modulate the uh, 
the return. So I, there's a great I, I just need to correct one that we share with you. I need to correct one point. We are sending people back without resources routinely. I've been across the border. I have visited with those returned back who have no resources, who have been in extraordinarily dangerous situations across the border in Mexico. Uh, this is both under the MPP and the metering program extraordinarily difficult situations and if it's just symbolic of that are Oscar and his daughter Valeria who were coming to the border to ask for asylum who were rejected sent back into Mexico with no resources no protection from gangs felt the only safe way that they could proceed was to surrender themselves to CBP swam the river as we know from that photo in the New York Times, Oscar and his daughter died arm in arm down in the river. We did not send them back with resources. They did not have protection. And if you go to Tijuana and you go to the shelters there, people are terrified to leave the shelters. Are you even aware that the State Department does not allow our own personnel to travel between cities after dark or to solicit taxis on the street? This is the situation we're sending people back into, whether it's under metering, whether it's under remain in Mexico, whether it's under a safe, so-called safe third country, when it's not a safe third country, those provisions of the law were designed for something like Canada, not a situation of this extraordinary danger, sending people into it without resources. It's an extraordinarily in contravention of the entire vision of the Refugee Convention, and uh, I hope you'll deeply rethink being part of it. Thank you. Uh, Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I, you weren't able to respond, and I don't know if you'd like to add anything to what, uh, what the prior speaker just said. Yes, I think I would, I would, Senator. Thank you for the opportunity. And that is simply to reaffirm again. I mean, there, there are safety and security problems in all of these countries. They are well documented in our human rights reports. That was my past job, was making those reports. But the element that we have to take into account is when we're encouraging or attracting a greater and greater flow of people, that is putting people at great risk too. They, they're putting themselves in the hands of uh, alien smugglers who are physically abusing them, who are uh, extorting them uh, and, and uh, leaving them in, in uh, uh, trucks in the middle of the desert and all manner of, of things. So the, it's what we're trying to stop is the whole outflow, the uncontrolled mass outflow of people in very dangerous conditions, and then our systems get overwhelmed, and that produces uh, other uh, problems as well. So what we're trying to say to people is, don't do that in the first place. And the way you you accomplish that is you say, if you if you try to come in that fashion that's unsafe and terrible for you, this was our experience with Cuba years ago. People were drowning trying to get here. So we said, look, if we pick you up, you'd see we're just going to put you back where you started from. However, if you go over to the U.S. Uh, interest section in Havana, you can apply for refugee status, and there's a safe, lawful way for you to, to get out. And that worked. So this is what we're trying to replicate here is to say, let's create opportunities for people to apply, and, and they do have those opportunities, and some have taken advantage of it and have been able to get to the United States as refugees by applying in their own countries and being processed in San Jose, Costa Rica. But when you, when you start this whole train of people going out with alien smugglers and being subjected to abuses and so on, 
almost anything you do is not going to be very satisfactory. So I, I don't want to discount in any way the, the human suffering that you're describing, Senator. It's, it's terrible, but it's terrible when they're on the way here as well as often when they, when they go back. We've got to find a better way, and that's what we're trying to do. Thank, thank, you. Th thank you very much, Mr. Uh, Madam Secretary, I, just quick, I was reading an article, Guatemala joins ranks of cocaine producers as plantations and labs emerge. Can I ask you to just spend some time talking a little bit about the criminal groups, what they what believes behind all of them in this effort, because now Guatemala is becoming a producing nation. Yes, this is a this is a, a major evolution to see to see this production shift up uh, up the isthmus because uh, it's traditionally been a South American challenge. Um, it, there was some indication last year there were some plants found, uh, but this is a much bigger thing. This is a series of plantations. It's pretty significant. Uh, I think the most important thing that happened immediately was that the government of Guatemala acknowledged that they are now a producer and that they need to take this on, uh, and we are already talking to them about what that looks like. Uh, and, and, and how we can be of assistance. Uh, we certainly don't want that. This, what this really shows is just the sort of uh, pernicious nature of the criminal organizations that produce this stuff. If, as we put the, put the pressure on them in, the, in South America, they're gonna try and move their business model further north. And my guess is it also has, to something, it has something to do with the effectiveness of some of the interdiction efforts that the Colombians and others are doing. They're just trying to get further up the food chain. Uh, and we, we do obviously do a lot of counter-narcotics work in Guatemala already. Uh, canine programs, we work with their Navy, um, and, and a whole range of things that we do with them. This is an evolution. We're talking to them. We've got to figure out what we're going to uh, do together or what they're going to do on their own while we work on these other pieces. But it's, it's not a welcome evolution for sure. And, and Secretary Kozak, you know, in your testimony you stated our message is clear. Governments of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras must do more to strengthen institutions, uh, root out corruption. Uh, fight impunity and which creates a permissive environment for, for transnational criminal organizations. So I completely agree. Uh, widespread corruption, failed governance make it extremely difficult to combat the threats posed by these transnational gangs, organized criminal groups. In your assessment, are the governments of El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras capable and willing to do those things? Well, on the capable side, this is what uh, we've been working on for couple of decades now, and my colleagues' uh, bureau has done some really yeoman work on this. We've trained judges, we've trained prosecutors, we've trained investigators, we've trained uh, uh, accountants to look into financial crimes. Uh, I worked on the side of uh, training independent journalists so that they could uh, pursue uh, corruption and the links between people and so on. Um, so on the capacity side, they have developed a lot of capacity over time. But what is still absent, I think, at least to the, to not there to the degree we would like to see it, is the political will to, to use those capabilities. What you have in each of these countries is people who have profited from and continue to profit from having a system that is corrupt and, and uh, non-transparent and where there's impunity. So uh, if you... Uh, and this is what I was saying earlier, it then contributes to a lack of growth. What investor wants to invest in a place where they know that uh, if they start competing with somebody that that privileged somebody can get the judge to rule in their favor and take the, or the tax authorities will take your money away or something. And so the result is really lousy uh, growth rates in these countries and that's one of the main factors that cause people to want to leave and look for 
uh, economic opportunity here. So uh, we're not the only ones demanding this. You look at election after election in the three countries, people who are promising to take that on are getting elected on that, on that campaign promise. Unfortunately, uh, they have not always been uh, able to deliver. We're certainly hopeful. We're hearing the right things, uh, certainly from uh, President Bukele in, uh, in El Salvador. Uh, who's writing a 90% popularity wave right now on those kinds of, of messages. Uh, President-elect uh, Jamate in, uh, in Guatemala is making uh, noises to that effect as well, or that, that he wants to, to move on these things. So we're going to work uh, you know, when, whenever we see the will there, but we're trying to encourage people across the board in those countries to have that political will to take these, these factors on and end what has just been this uh, chronic... Uh, disease in the countries for years. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. You know, at the uh, UN General Assembly yesterday, President Trump demonstrated that he clearly does not grasp or care about the root causes of this crisis. Um, Mr. Kozak, uh, do you agree that crop failures and food insecurity have contributed to increased migration from Central America to the United States? I would say that the overall economic conditions of which uh, the situation of farming in those countries is one of them uh, have contributed. So you're saying food, food insecurity and crop failures have contributed? When they've occurred, of course. Yeah, okay. So the Trump administration obviously knows that the answer is yes. An internal customs and border protection report in September of 2018 showed a clear correlation between food insecurity and high migration uh, from Guatemala. Uh, I also have in my possession documents from your department warning specifically that cuts in USAID food security programs would lead to increased migration from Honduras. Um, can either of you explain why this administration has cut food security funding knowing uh, from your own agency studies that doing so would increase migration from Central America by cruelly depriving people of a fighting chance at home? Well, I think as I indicated in my testimony, Senator, the step on, on uh, cutting uh, assistance was more of a wake-up call than an analysis of the effect of each one of these programs. But what is clear is we've had these programs going for years and years and years, and the migration numbers have gone up, up, up. So even though we were being programmatically successful on a lot of these things, and we had all, you know, assessed that if we, well, if we can make a dent in uh, the murder rate, if we can make an improvement on food security, that, that that will reduce migration, it wasn't having that effect. Now, there, you know, there are so many variables we can all we could discuss all day what we think was the main factor or the secondary factor. So I, I don't think that it was uh, people sitting there saying let's uh, that we're able to make a direct linkage between this and that. It was saying, look, we want to send a wake up call to people and say, you guys in the region need to start acting differently too. And then we can look at at what we can do with our assistance and other modes. I would add too, what we were looking at heavily now is, what can we do to encourage investment in the region, not just 
providing more and more foreign assistance, but can we use uh, OPIC funding, for example? There's a, a big uh, liquid natural gas project that's going into El Salvador now. I think it's like $350 million or something. This is going to create jobs. It's well, going to create yeah, economic I just want to come, I, I just want to come back, though, to yep. uh, your own department's warning, specifically the cuts in USAID food security programs would lead to increased migration from Honduras. That's not, uh, that's not speculation or you know just speaking from the heart uh, that these people really need food. That's an assessment made by the department that it would have that consequence. And again, when you're a poor person, when you have hungry children in your family and you get the message that there's going to be cuts in the programs uh, that are going to be providing uh, for food security for your family, that's a powerful message to get moving, get out of here. This is not a good situation. So you might have, you might have just said that this is a, a signal that was sent, but the signal, of course, is going to the poorest people in that country. Uh, that the food that they were relying upon is not going to be there any longer and that the United States government is sending a signal that they're not going to be uh, providing that help. So, um, so I just think that from uh, our government's perspective, um, the problem is being exacerbated. It's, it's, it's clearly, uh, again, a misunderstanding of the underlying problems here, which are poverty, uh, which is hunger, uh, which is, yes, injustice in these countries, but the way to help these people or to convince them to stay is not to cut their food security. Uh, that's at the core of uh, all of these uh, issues. And crop failures, of course, are also uh, related uh, to uh, a global climate resiliency strategy. Uh, and the president, of course, at the UN is not even talking about climate uh, at all uh, as, a, as a potential um, um, a, a, a cause of this problem. So are either of you aware of any proactive uh, efforts by this administration to assess climate change vulnerabilities to this region? I am not. And nor am I. Yeah. So according to a GAO report, the State Department stopped providing missions with guidance on whether and how to include climate change risk in their integrated country strategies. Why is that? I don't have uh, any sense of why that decision was made, sir. Yeah, nor, nor do I, but we'll be happy to go back and uh, well, again, take the we, question Well, again, we know it. the reason why. It, it has to do with ExxonMobil, with, um, with LNG companies, uh, with uh, others who, uh, who actually control the agenda of the Trump administration. And of course, what we do need ultimately uh, alternatively, is a proactive and coordinated effort to assess and uh, and to address the climate uh, change vulnerabilities in each of these countries, uh, because that also is related to the crop failures. And unless and until we do that, a small handful of jobs that come from an LNG facility in any of these countries is going to be far outweighed uh, by the harm which is being done by climate uh, change to those countries and to their ability. Uh, to be able to sustainably provide for their own people. So, um, so I'm, I'm going to ask to, uh, <clears throat> you know, just to uh, introduce into the record a letter which I'm, I'm sending today to the President uh, on these questions so that uh, uh, we at least try to elicit from the administration answers to these critical questions. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator. Your letter will be admitted into the record. 
Mr. Kozak, um, I, I'm, I'm uh, impressed with your understanding of, uh, of this, having worked with it for so long. And I, I think uh, the American people have, have questions about this. Uh, th this is a horrible situation. It's a, it, it's a human tragedy of, of mammoth proportions. But it, I, I, I appreciate your statement about, look, every person is different, what motivates them to leave their country and, and go somewhere else. What, what, what would be your opinion? And I understand it varies from person to person. These people who come north, do they view us, the United States, people of the United States of America, as having a responsibility to take care of them? Well, again, as you indicated, Mr. Chairman, everybody is different. My, but but my, generally, my, is it, what's their general no, in view my, with In it? my sense, it, it's not so much that we have a responsibility to take care of them. It's that they're, they're saying, I'm not uh, able to see a good future for myself or my family in my country because there are economic obstacles, sure. there are uh, you know, lack of justice, lack of rule of law obstacles. I can't you know, aspire in my own country to say, uh, gee, I could open up a, a store and compete with that guy down the street and gain more market share and employ my neighbors. They just can't do any of that. So they look to us as saying, okay, here's a place where I can go and I can uh, get a job, I can send money back to my family, and that kind of thing. And this is what we're trying to channel that energy to into a better place. When you look at these uh, agreements that we're in the process of doing now with the, with the three countries, they're not just the asylum element that we've discussed here uh, this morning, but there's also um, agreements on uh, H-2A visa program so that we will be enhancing, working with the, our Department of Labor and the departments of labor in those countries, saying that there'll be more opportunity for people to come here under H-2A visas. They don't have to bring their whole family with them and go through uh, the perils that we've, uh, that we've been discussing, but they'd be able to come lawfully, legally, get a decent uh, job, take money back home, and then maybe that helps them grow their uh, uh, their opportunity in their own country. So I think they look to us as, as a place of opportunity, uh, and that's why everybody wants to come, but not so much that the U.S. government has a responsibility to uh, provide them a, you and, know, And I guess that, that, that takes me to the next step, and that is that, uh, as you point out, there's countries down there that don't have this kind of problem. And, and so why, you know, the, the, the problems are well documented as what happens when they hit the border of the United States, why wouldn't they stay in Mexico and say, well, here's, here's a place for opportunity? Or why wouldn't they go to Belize? Or why wouldn't they go to Panama? Uh, is it just because it's so much better here that uh, things are so much better here that they're willing to take the risks to come here? I think that's some of it. And it's also that there are a lot of familial relations now, too. I mean, when you look at the amounts of money that people have to pay. If you're somebody who's very impoverished in one of these countries and the coyotes are, are charging you $7,000, I think is about the average, you don't have $7,000. If you did, you wouldn't be wanting to leave. But you've got family in the United States who can provide $7,000, probably not somebody in, in Mexico. I would say, though, that Costa Rica and Panama are uh, also uh, destinations for uh, people who are fleeing uh, 
uh, problems in their own countries. Uh, people in Nicaragua, are, I mean, the, the bulk of the people who fled Nicaragua are in Costa Rica. Uh, Panama's got a sizable uh, chunk of Venezuelans at this point. So uh, those countries are attractive uh, to, to people. Uh, we, don't hear, we don't hear much about that. Uh, yeah, they just quietly take care of it and, and they're doing a, a good job. We're trying to be helpful with them. One thing that I didn't think I got on the on the record here, uh, Chairman, that it might be useful to, and that is that we've had, aside of all these agreements that we're doing, doing recently, we've had a program for some time in the three countries where the UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, the International Organization for Migration, working with funding uh, from the United States amongst other countries, have in-country refugee programs. So if you are being persecuted. Let's say you're an investigative journalist in Guatemala who's writing stories about the connections between uh, drug dealers and bribing uh, local officials or judges or something, and you get yourself into a position where you are going to be persecuted for that reason. You go to them and they, they say, yep, you've got a, uh, sounds like a good claim. They'll, they'll help you go over to Costa Rica where you get, there's a regional processing center there. And a lot of those people are ending up in the United States, in Europe, in uh, other uh, countries in the hemisphere. Uh, so there is a lawful way to deal with that kind of problem as well. And that's what we're trying to enhance that and deter the let's everybody get in, in trucks and vans uh, and get left out in the middle of the desert or molested the way that uh, the, the alien smugglers are doing it. So I think that's what we're trying to signal, is there's a, there's a right way to do this and a wrong way, and let's put our emphasis on the right way. Thanks so much for your, uh, your insight on this. I appreciate it. It's been, uh, been helpful. Uh, Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, I'd like to ask unanimous consent that a statement for the record be included by Congresswoman Veronica Escobar of El Paso and a series of documents, letters that have been sent by myself to the to state on U.S.-Mexico agreements and states' non-responses be included for the record. They'll be included. Uh, uh, Mr. Secretary, I was listening to the conversation between you and the, um, the chairman, and I appreciate the context in which you answered the last question. Do, the chairman asked, do we, is there an ex expectation that we have to take care of them? So when Vietnamese refugees came here, they didn't think we had to take care of them, right? When Cuban refugees came to the United States, they did not think we had to take care of them, right? When Venezuelans fleed under Chavismo, we didn't feel that we had to take care of them. Uh, when Nicaraguans fled during that period of time. So it's fair to say that these people fled either incredible oppression or, in some cases, horrific violence. Is that not a fair statement? The people from the countries you just mentioned, yeah. sir? Yes, absolutely. And so they didn't think we had to take care of them, but they, they knew this country was a country that was a beacon of light to the rest of the world as it relates to giving refuge when it is appropriate and the law is met. Uh, to taking care of some of these challenges. So I think um, we have to think about that in that context as well. Let me, let me ask uh, uh, Secretary Madison. In March, the President cut funds appropriated by Congress to address root causes of migration from Central America. And while some DHS and DOJ programs will receive continued funding, these cuts terminated a wide range of programs designed to advance our national security. 
Secretary Madison, INL sent us a list of all the programs your bureau had to cut due to the President's decision. The list included funds for police training, improving police forensics and intelligence, preventing gang recruitment, and combating the sexual exploitation of children, all initiatives that I think we could agree would stabilize Central America and slow migration. Uh, is, is that the case? Senator, those are programs that, that we will have to suspend or, or, or have or will wind down, depends on what the pipeline looks like. Um, and I think what that reflects is, as my colleague has noted, a decision by the president that his highest priority was the migration numbers uh, and that uh, while we would preserve some of the specialized programs that we're doing in Central America to work on counter-narcotics and port issues and TCOs, uh, that in fact that um, he was going to send a message to these countries. Let's send a uh, message. So let's, let's talk about sending messages. Are you telling this committee that there aren't other countries in the world rooted in deep corruption, that we don't continue to have programs of your department? And I'd be happy to cite you some if you don't think there are any. Senator, we're not talking about the rest of the world. We're talking no, we about countries. we are. We're talking but about comparisons, Madam Secretary. If you're going to, you and the Secretary are going to say that the per President's purpose is to send a message, well, I can assure you there's corruption in Afghanistan. I can assure you that there is corruption in a series of nations in which we are continuing to engage in programs from your part of the State Department. So let's not say we're sending a message in that regard, because then we would be sending a global message, right? Senator, this isn't a message about corruption. This is a, senator, this is a message um, from our president about the priority he places on these countries taking aggressive action to address the outflow of their citizens and the crisis that we have on our southern border. And, and again, I think it is a time-honored tradition in this town to use foreign assistance as leverage. In fact, I think if you were to look at the statutes on foreign assistance, you would find them replete uh, with conditions but and you're, cuts. But, you're, but you don't so have I don't think equivalence. You don't have to equivalence. Don't talk to me about corruption as a reason that you're stopping funds because that's how you send them a message to get their act together. When in fact there are countries that we send hundreds of millions of dollars that are in fact uh, deeply rooted in corruption, you know, and, and have serious issues for which we are working in the hopes that they will change, right? But when you cut funding uh, combating the sexual exploitation of children, when you uh, cut funding preventing gang recruitment, I don't know how that helps us at the end of the day create greater stability in Central America and, and sends a message. So can you confirm, uh, Secretary Madison, that the president's cuts force you to reprogram, what, for whatever the reasoning that you want to justify, 90 million from Central America that included the initiatives I listed? We were, in fact, directed to reprogram funding. Okay. Is your assessment that these programs that INL was funding under your leadership were effective and were helping to address violence and improve the rule of law in the region? Senator, the, these programs, while they programmatically can be effective, as, as my colleague has noted, um, the, our secretary testified on the Hill and made the, the absolutely critical point for this administration, which is the only metric that matters is the question of what the migration situation looks like on the southern border. Okay. So we were asked you, to I didn't ask you about migration. Listen to my question. I'm you answering. were a former staffer of this committee. 
you understand very well, and you've adopted the State Department's ability to deviate from the question. My question is, is it your assessment that these programs that INL was funding under your leadership were effective and were helping to address violence and improve the rule of law in the region, yes or no? Senator, I, again, I believe that, is, that these programs have been programmatically effective, but the issue is the pace with I, which it's I, altering. Uh, sir, I, didn't I? Ask, I didn't ask you about migration. I asked you whether the programs were effective. Yes or sir, no? Sir, I, I actually have answered that question. I have okay, said so the I believe yes. that, the, that these programs can be programmatically effective, but that's a different question than whether or not I don't, all you these. You don't get to ask the questions. You sir, get to answer them. So sir, a different question as to whether you want to use this for migration is a different issue. I want to know whether the programs were effective. The answer is yes, and it must be yes because I'm sure you can confirm to the committee that the State Department, the Secretary, sent Congress nine different reports that acknowledge progress was made, was made, and certified that benchmarks were being met. Is that not true on these programs? Sir, I can't confirm the number. I'm, I feel certain that certifications have been sent. Uh, Secretary Kozak, can you confirm the number? I can't for, confirm okay. the number, but it sounds so right. It's, I'd be happy uh, I, to I, see I wouldn't if we question can produce the, the documents gave, for you that yep. we have no, in I, our I, possession. I'm saying I wouldn't, I wouldn't question the number. there are nine different reports that the Secretary of State acknowledged progress was being made and certified to the Congress that benchmarks were being made. So given that progress was being made, as determined by the Secretary of State, uh, can you explain to us the impact on our national security and national interests when we ultimately end those programs for which we were making progress and certifying benchmarks? Not all programs have been severed. The programs that we continue to, to fund and to support are programs that are focused on the highest priorities of counter-narcotics, transnational criminal organizations, uh, and, and uh, borders and, and immigration. The issue, which I will try again to, to put on the table, is that these programs are not moving the needle fast enough to address the, the situation on our southern border. And that is the, 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 the benchmark and the so measure saying, our president has put on the table. You're saying that the only reason we did these programs was, in fact, to stop migration to the southern border? That's why we did these programs? No other reason? Senator, I am saying, not saying that. What I'm okay, saying well is that is the measure that matters to, to the president. You're trying to conflate something, and I'm just not going to permit you to conflate it. The reality is, is that these programs were meant to create institutional capacity building in the very countries that we say don't have the capacity. And yes, I'm all with you on getting governments to have the will to do what is necessary, but to believe that those governments on their own with the institutional incapacity that exists, with the lack of resources that exists, could actually make this happen? To think that cutting funds for ultimately uh, hurting, uh, you know, on the effort to combat the sexual exploitation of children? Come on. That's, that's just irrational. Irrational. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I find your testimony completely rational, and I think you're an ex excellent spokesperson for uh, uh, what is happening there. Uh, uh, I'm going to give you the last opportunity, both of you. First of all, I want to express appreciation of the committee of the American people for what you do uh, under very difficult circumstances for a most 
a tragic situation that uh, that everyone would like to make different, and I know you're working in good faith to do that. So first, starting with you, uh, Ms. Madison, uh, could you uh, uh, give us a closing statement, anything you want to add uh, uh, to the dialogue that's uh, taken place in the committee today? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate it. Um, Obviously, I chose to lead the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs for a reason, after having been the oversight person on this committee who worked on it many years ago. Um, I do believe that these programs are beginning to work, you know, help these countries move along the spectrum. It's obviously not working on, the, on, on some of the, on, on a sort of meta level. Um, and I think we're gonna look at them as we're in this period of suspension and figure out what we do differently. Um, in the meantime, I would say that we are still focused on the priorities of, of counter-narcotics and, and, and working with border officials and working on transnational organized crime, uh, which is absolutely essential to the security of this country. And it is a national security priority for, do, for us to do that, and we preserve those efforts. Um, and while I, I fully appreciate the, the disagreements that exist regarding the, the larger goal of this administration uh, and, and the use of these assistance dollars, I want to assure you that I take very seriously my stewardship of these resources uh, and securing results for the American people. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Madison. Well said. Mr. Kozak. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Ranking Member Menendez and your colleagues for giving us the opportunity here today. I think what I would emphasize coming out of this is, I, despite the fact that we clearly do not agree on a lot of uh, uh, methodology, is that I think there is agreement on goal. I think all of us would like to see safe, orderly uh, migration from the region. We'd like to see the region develop to the extent that people are not uh, trying to, to leave in droves. And I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Uh, this, you know, there's no magic bullet to do this. Uh, the administration has taken an approach that, uh, that we are trying to work and work uh, and we think is being effective. At the same time, you know, we're very open to other ideas. There may be other things that we can try. And we would uh, look forward to working very closely with the committee and, and trying to uh, debate these things back and forth and see if there, if there are things that we can do together that would stem this tide of illegal migration and get things back on a track where people are, are safe and can, can start to have a, a real future in their, own, uh, in their own countries. So thank you again for the, for the opportunity. Thank you so much, and again, thank you both for your service. Uh, for the information of the members, the record will be remain open until the close of business on Friday. We ask witnesses to respond as promptly as possible. Your responses will also be made a part of the record. With the thanks of the committee and the thanks of the American people, this committee is adjourned.